By the way, Richard. Hey, everybody. It's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with episode 99 of the Serpent Sales Podcast. Uh, we have an awesome guest who's really disappointed because the 100th episode, we were going to give away a free car. So he's a little, he's a little miffed at us at the moment. Uh, but it's Elias Rubel of Mattermade. Elias, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys, for having me. I, uh, I hope at least I get a set of steak knives. Uh, well, uh, we don't go down that reference route. You're out. <laughs> all right. Damn it. We can use it. We can use I can get you a t-shirt. I can get you that. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, all right. If you so, hear screaming in the background, it's because Richard, our kids are apparently playing video games against each other. Yes. Yes, I know. I know. Screaming. So, so Elias, to give people context before we jump into stuff, we, we always sort of ask, Tell us a little bit about Mattermade, what it is, not from a sales point or pitch point, but just so people have your context, you know, what's your average deal like, what's your sales cycle like, any of that stuff that just sort of gives them a better understanding of, of who you are. And it will also go into your backstory because I know that's pretty interesting too. Yeah, for sure. Happy to. So real high level, um, I started Mattermade. I, I sold my first SaaS business. We did the whole venture back thing. Um, was? And I, what's that? Which was? Like oh, Glider.com. We were a uh, contract lifecycle management for okay. Fortune 1000s. And that was, it was acquired in 14. And afterwards, I, I took a year and a half motorcycle trip through Central America and all around to try to kind of do the cheesy discovery, self-discovery thing. And I, I, I landed in San Francisco. That business had, had been founded in Portland. Um, I landed in San Francisco with like a giant identity crisis. And I didn't know what I was going to do next. And um, the the real version of the story is I was sitting in coffee shops, just like twiddling my thumbs, trying to force myself to come up with an, another product idea to go and, and fundraise for. And uh, long story short, True Ventures reached out and they started dropping me into portfolio companies to help with growth. So I was doing these interim VP of marketing stints. And fast forward four years, I was having a hell of a time, just like a fun time um, doing these stints, but I really missed having my own team. So Mattermade was, was born out of that, basically wanting my own team again. I built uh, what I think is the ideal B2B marketing org for a series A company. And since then we've been going in and, and we basically act as either an extension of their existing team, which a lot of the times is one or two people, or sometimes their entire marketing org if they haven't made that hire yet. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the quick and dirty, uh, all B2B, our average deal size, uh, usually it's six to 12 months between 25 and 35 K a month, um, for the startup clients. And then we do work with larger companies and those are six figure a month deals. So, so just out of, so when you, when you decide to come back to San Francisco, had you always wanted to be in San Francisco or was it the cliche? I've been a success in Portland. Now I need to prove myself in, you know, in Silicon Valley. Like what brought you here? Yeah, no, I mean, I'd always wanted to be in the city or be in San Francisco. Um, it was just this like, even before I was so, uh, this will this will get into a bit of the backstory, but I was originally a photographer. I went to art school, I dropped out of art school and I was a starving artist in LA for a while waiting tables. And uh, at that time I was like, man, San Francisco, I was down in LA, like I said, Santa Monica and it's like San Francisco would be so cool and there's just so much happening there. And uh, I read the four hour work week, kind of super cheesy uh, getting started in tech story and started reading TechCrunch, And I was like, man, I'm young. Like that, those guys doing internet stuff, I can do that. Um, and I literally, that was it. I was like, I, I'm going to add a, 
I call it my quarter life crisis when I was in LA waiting tables. And I was like, I'm going to move home into to Portland, into my mom's basement. And, I, and I'm going to set myself up with a rule where I'm not allowed to leave the basement until I've started a company. And so that was kind of the, the start of it all, um, which is a long-winded way to tell you why uh, San Francisco. Elias is like the, the Don Ready, the goods of, of marketing for early stage company. He just like shows up with his team and they do their thing and then you move on, right? We need to, yeah. we need to, merge, we need to merge forces, Elias, since this is, <laughs> I do the exact same thing, but on the sales side. Right. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can purchase my company for a small, to be determined amount later on. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like going about the process of selling your company? This is something that we've never touched upon uh, in any of our episodes. And frankly, I don't actually think it's talked about too much. It's like pretty sure. taboo. If, you're, if you work at a startup company and you, and you were the CEO and I walked up to you and said, hey, like, uh, what's the future for this company? Like, when are we going to sell or going to IPO or like what's going on? The standard answer is, oh, you know, we don't worry about that. Yeah. We talk about that. We're just trying to focus on building a great company. So we don't get much information on the acquisition kind of process. So I would love to hear some stories and, and tips on what it's like to, to go through that, that selling process. That's got to be the best and biggest sale of your life, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've done it twice now, so I can give you two different perspectives because they were very different processes. And now you're so right. <laughs> so uh the the software you business glider because you're still working like, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> it's just entitled now um so with glider if the first thing is you said selling the business and that's really right like a lot of i think a lot of founders are, are like oh we got acquired and it's it's like a very active process once you decide that you're going to get acquired or going to sell, you, you run a proper process. Um, and so for us, we were planning on raising our next round of financing. We were still very early. I mean, we were bought very young. Um, we built a product though that was really compelling for our ultimate acquirer because they were 30 years in our space and had really boring, shitty tech and giant logos that were going to leave them for Aptis. And so they, they literally bought us to remain relevant and to be competitive in those Aptis deals. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the process, I, I showed up to Dreamforce one year and uh, I took uh, like three random BD meetings. The rest of it was all very planned, but there were three meetings that kind of cropped up in my inbox. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And one of them was with this company that ultimately bought us FPX and um, their BD guy was like, hey, can you meet me um, near the conference space? I've got a hotel room, like we'll just chat down in the lobby, whatever. I get there and he was like, oh, we're up in the penthouse, like meet us up at the penthouse. And it, I thought it was just one guy, right? So now he's saying us, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I show up and their entire executive team, board, everyone is there in suits, not looking very San Francisco at all. <laughs> in, like lining the walls of the, uh, of wow. the penthouse. And um, so yeah, I just went through like the, the pitch and was like, three times as confident as I probably should have been about everything. But the, by the time and, you walked into the room and there was all the suits there and, and the whole organization, did you know what you were there for? Were you like, oh shit, they, they want I, Honestly, no. I, I was just like, this is weird. I don't really, like, you know, it was clear that they were trying to figure something strategic out, but we were so early that I, I was like, there's, you know, they're just trying to figure out what they can figure out about our product and kind of 
how we're thinking about the market so that they can go and build it faster than us because they're much larger. I didn't, I really didn't. I, I wish I could say I had that fourth foresight, but um, fast forward uh, an hour, they, they called me back. I was on the way, on my way to the airport and I thought it was the Uber driver. And I was like, Hey, I'm coming, I'm coming down the stairs. Like I'll be there in a hour. second. Fast forward an hour. Like yeah, I'm no. you're waiting for like fast forward six months. No. Yeah. That's, dude, that's uh, <laughs> not a fast forward. That's just like an hour later. Yeah. 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 Right. Yes, exactly. So I, I don't even, I, I don't even start off with like, hello, this is, this is Elias. I'm like, I'll be there in a second. I'm, I'm running down the stairs and, uh, He's like, no, this is, uh, I don't even remember his name anymore. But uh, he's like, can you come back to the St. Regis? And I was like, no, I'm, I thought you were my Uber driver. I'm on, the way, on my way to the airport back to Portland. And he's like, I really think you should come back to the St. Regis. <laughs> uh, and I was like, honestly, like, I will miss my flight. And he was like, I, th I think it'll be all right. The, the, like, the owner of the business wants to chat with you. And so I, I met this woman. She's covered like head to toe in diamonds. Um, and the way that she introduces herself, she puts her hand up and she goes, hi, introduces herself. I'm going to buy your business. And I was like, well, it's not for sale. And, uh, she goes, it perfect first answer. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, it is. And I was like, no, no, it's not. And she's like, the two of you will work out the details, but we'll have you an LOI before you land in Portland. And that was it. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, how did you how did you feel sort of like, okay, so that's cool, right? Like this is, this is the dream. Like you literally did live this dream, yeah. right? Um, were you like, oh my God, what do I do now? I don't have my lawyer here. I don't like, <laughs> you like, you know what? You just kind of say yes and go with it and you'll figure out this other stuff later. It was, yeah, I think it was one of these just like it, didn't feel real. It also didn't feel legit. Like I, I was like, this is, this doesn't make sense. It feels just too good to be true. Like I'll just play along. I was kind of playing along. And then when I got to the airport, I was like, well, shit, I better text some people. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm hitting up our, our investors. I'm hitting up my advisor. And, uh, and then sure enough, like a day later, the document arrives and we're like, okay, I guess this is like at least potentially real. And that's when we, you know, Did you go, were you able to negotiate a price? Because again, this is that part where it's like, I do have investors. I have other people who are part of this. Yep. This woman's, you know, they're not strong arming you, but they, you know, was the letter of intent really a, hey, you're not going to go try and sell this before we try to put together a deal. Was that really what the LOI was at that point? Or so was there an actual number in there? The, there was an actual number. Okay. Um, and there's some important details that I gloss over sometimes. Like we later found out that we were being acquired by one of the world's largest patent trolls. So this was not a thing that we immediately knew. And later it becomes important because later there were certain things that occurred that were very like aggressive and it, they had a strategy and they were running it, right? Like we were part of their, we were, we were at a stage in their process and the LOI was a piece of uh, a tool. Um, so, you know, the LOI gets you hooked, you see a number, you get married to the number, and then, you know, you, you get beaten up as the process moves forward. Thankfully, we had uh, a banker that was helping us out and was integral in, in not getting beat up too bad and, and kind of having it not land where we wanted it to land. But it's still, I mean, an acquisition is a, like, especially, I mean, I was waiting tables like four, three years earlier. And so to me, it was like everything. It was like, it wasn't a Silicon Valley home run. It wasn't a, you know, like 
go like it wasn't fuck you money but to me it was the difference between like you know i first time ceo like if you don't have a success you might be able to go get a job as a project manager or or like an ae and so for me this was a huge this was everything so all the everything was at stake to me um so you you yeah it's it's a it's a total mind-bending thing yeah that's that's amazing what um what advice would you give to people who are you know they're in that euphoric stage yeah of like oh my gosh you know i wish someone would have told me this like immediately surround yourself with the right people and immediately if you don't have a therapist you probably should get one (laughs) you know like so just someone you can talk to openly because it's a lot of pressure and then it moves from like first you're thinking about holy shit how this is how my life would change if this happened to holy shit this is what this would mean to my employees and like the all of the people that are surrounding you that you're responsible for um and then it becomes a lot heavier at that point because it's not just about you know, at first it's fun and exciting and it's just about you. What do you, then you, what do you realize so this is where I, I hate buzzwords. Yeah. Heavier. What was heavy? You know, it, and, and again, I, there may be some privacy things that you don't want to yeah. talk about, but, but what felt so heavy? Well, so people know that we had gotten ourselves as, as we got further and further into the process, their tactic was basically drag the process out to try They knew we were fundraising right before they started the process. And so they gave us enough, uh, enough certainty that the deal was going to happen that we didn't continue with the fundraising. And then they, then, then they like strategically paused the process enough to make us sweat and, and get into a position where it's like, either we have to raise an emergency bridge from our investors or everyone or the company would fold, right? Because it's just like, you know, we'd be left out in the wind, not protected. And so that, that's kind of the heavy moment where you're like, I need to land this plane or I'm going to have to tell everyone that like, we, so know. did the, so did you, do you, in hindsight, do you think you ended up selling it cheaper than you should have? No. No. Okay. So you felt like it was fair. Yeah. Ultimately it was for what we had and where we were, we were so early. Yeah. Right. I think it was a fair deal. Would you, would you try to run a fundraising process in tandem with the Absolutely process is absolutely is that one of the lessons that you learn for sure yeah like completely hedge yourself so that you you have more than one option you win either Uh, way right yeah and and run a process with other folks i mean so that's what happened in the second uh i bought an e-commerce business uh a couple of years ago and did like a turnaround on it it was it was a dumpster fire when i bought it and then i ended up selling it to a, a p group um not too long ago actually and that was the opposite of that. Like I went out and ran my own very formal process. I reached out to every possible buyer. I mean, it was like I was running a sales process for myself. Is so it, that is it the same as running a sales process? Is it, is it I mean, is it figure out your ideal yep. customer and yep, get them to totally. a list in the system and do the touch point? Is it the, it's the same? Everything. And, and like even down to sales enablement, like, you know, they're going to ask for certain documents, you know, that, you know, they're going to have certain objections. So the more prepared you are and give them that, you know, that information up front, it's totally a sales process. So I guess that's the advice is like, I think first time founders or executives going through that process don't necessarily know that like, it's a tried and true thing. Surround yourself with the people who have been through it before. Let's transition a little bit to what you're, what you're doing now and, and helping companies grow, go zero to 10. 
yeah. on the marketing side of things. What are some of the nightmarish situations you can tell us about the lack of sales and marketing alignment? This oh, is what man. I know about. Oh, man. It's... I know you're walking in. Don't try to pretend like you don't. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Walk, walk whichever side you want. Go for it. Because we're, we're, yeah. we're going to force you anyway. So, Sure. So I think one of my first roles where I was responsible for dealing with leading marketing in partnership with sales. It was a really interesting lesson for me. Like there were a number of lessons, but I was really like we, the, the sales leader and I were at odds most of the time. Like we started off on great terms. It got really sticky. And in retrospect, you know, it was, it was a classic like sales versus marketing versus sales. Like it just wasn't, it was one of those things that got unhealthy pretty quickly. What were, you, fight, what were you fighting over though? What, what was the, what, we both, we, yeah, we, but we didn't, we were not the, the simple solution now in retrospective. And this is one of the things that like we coach as soon as we get into a, an org, we're working, we're figuring out like what are sales goals and how can we be like perfectly aligned with them. Right. Um, but we didn't have the same goals. That was, that was it. It was as simple as that. Like they, he was judged on, on one set of metrics and we were judged on MQLs basically. And it was like, that is now like, I you hear that everybody we've been yeah. telling you yeah yeah no mqls are the are the it's the dumbest thing as an as an executive or a board if you're holding your marketing team to a lead commit goal or an mql goal totally flawed like hold them to the same it can be an opti commit or 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 just closed one like because then then the feedback loop i'm sure i'm preaching to the choir here but like it's not, it's not even enough for them to be sales qualified leads because then you're not invested as a marketing org in getting the feedback about why the sales qualified leads didn't convert to close one. So I think if you, if you align them on the same metrics, lo and behold, they're going to be having a lot more meetings, a lot more conversations. Everything's going to be a lot more fluid. And when sales is happy, marketing's happy. And when marketing's happy, sales happy. I'm totally perplexed now because I'm not sure if we should call this guess you'll never believe what happens next or MQLs or the scourge <laughs> of marketing compensation. I can't decide what the title needs to be. And we're, we're only halfway through. So let's see what, what else can we throw out there. I know we're just got started. <laughs> uh, but, but, but expand on that a little bit more too. Like um, I, I love what you said that you, you know, even SALs aren't yeah. enough. Yeah. Right. So, so we know that MQLs are the wrong thing. I can buy into SALs aren't yep. strong enough. Closed revenue is yep. obviously there. Have you, what are you recommending to people then to really be that, that trigger point or that moment where you can really feel comfortable about that opt? I think, I think most executives, like if we're sitting down with the CEO and it's the VP of sales, usually the businesses we're brought into already have a VP of sales and we're brought in because the VP of sales is like, the board just told me to hire three to five reps. We need to feed them. What are you doing about marketing? And then the VCs send us in. Um, or something. I'm, I'm having heartburn over a VP of sales. First act is to go begging for leads and inbounds from the VP of marketing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so... I think it depends then on the personality of the CEO and the personality of the VP of sales. For some, the opportunities created is enough. And for others, it's just more simple to do close one. But 
Yeah, but, but you're still, you're still like, what do you mean opportunities are enough? What kind of opportunity? What do we need to know? Well, I mean, I'm pushing you. Hard. Push me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it depends on, it depends, like, different sales leaders will qualify. So like some people qualify opportunities really quickly and they just want to show like a fat opportunity, like a fat pipe. And so they're, they're easy to qualify things. And those sales leaders are probably the ones who are going to go, no, 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 we should be aligned on revenue. Whereas, you know, if you have leadership that has a very strict qualification process and like, this is ready to be an opportunity for all these reasons, then it could make sense to align on the opportunity level because the difference between opportunity and close one could just be all the reasons why a a great opportunity could fall apart. Right. Uh, But you still want the, I think the key here is alignment and communication between sales and marketing, like all having encouraging all of those conversations to continue to happen. So there's a feedback loop. So do you, do you then sort of, which sort of pushes us to where I think the world is going is the sort of revenue team, revenue ops. Yep. Right. Which is sort of where things are. And, I can only imagine, I know you've come in sort of talking, we, we were sort of the, you know, the, the marketing side things, but how are you adjusting with that revenue side of the house? Are you seeing that? Do you agree with it? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it still ends up getting segmented out. Like you, if you have a chief revenue officer, they're still going to put someone in charge of marketing e things and someone in charge of sales e things, especially once you get to a certain size, it's hard to keep those all truly blended. Um, so I guess I don't see too much of a difference except you, you squash a lot of infighting by having someone responsible for both of those teams. And, and usually that person understands the importance of alignment and, and all the things we've been talking about. So I, if I were to start another company again, a SaaS business, I would not hire, I would hire a CRO and have them figure out everything from there. Like as far as you know, who they want to put in both of those leadership. And would that would that CRO come from a sales background or a marketing background? Ooh. Uh, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say all the marketers are gonna hate me for this, but I'm gonna say they'd come from a sales background, <laughs> and they would hire a very. Um, They would hire a very analytical marketer. So explain on that. So, so, and you know, yes, it's fun that we poke on that and, and you, you sure. goes wisely. You, yeah, you first of all, right congratulations. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, what does that mean to you though, of what makes you think the sales leader needs to be the revenue head? And then when you say analytical marketer, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, there are two, if you were to put labels on things, usually you have creative marketers they're the ones coming up with these like bombastic ideas for campaigns and they're getting really creative and funky with things. And then you have the ones that are very just like, how do I drive numbers? All I care about are numbers. I don't care how we get there. They test everything, uh, smaller, more frequent bets as opposed to big kind of colorful bets. Um, I think they're both needed in order, like if you have an analytical marketer at the helm, that person needs to surround themselves with like a very talented creative marketer because that's how their campaigns will stand out. But at least they will be driving the cadence and, and kind of a high frequency testing mindset, which, and also they'll be really bought into partnering with sales on feedback. 
because it's just part of their their testing, right? Oh, we generated a lead that didn't that didn't like this this cohort of leads seemed to not be doing well from this channel. Uh, even though the car is much better, it's just not converting into closed one. Like, let's learn from that and move on. Um, as opposed to that campaign, that campaign killed it. Like that campaign killed it. What's wrong? You know, like like that's kind of the old school thing we have to be careful of. Um, and just not being proud of things, being proud of close one. That's ultimately what we're all here for. What are, what are some of the challenges that you face in, in dealing with clients of yours where the founders or the founder do not come from any kind of sales and marketing background whatsoever? Mm. You know, I'd, I'd say, yeah, that's most of our clients. Um, we're usually brought in for technical and product minded founders. So, so, what are, so what are some of the challenges that you think are unique to those situations from, from your side, from the marketing side. I know what they are from my side, from the sure. sales angle. Um, I'm wondering if they're different or the same as what I would say from, from your marketing side. So uh, this is your, your uh, let me find my soapbox and get right up onto it. Um, <laughs> we actually have a slide that's just, that we, we have started leading our onboardings with. Because I'm like, right now we're not stepping on any toes if we, call out these bad habits or these things that we really don't like once we're into engagement because they haven't shown those habits yet. And if we call them out later, then we're like, you know, stepping on toes. So we have a slide dedicated to this, but just some of the highlights would be there tends to be, okay, the first and probably the most important is that early teams have been focused on building product and features and product and features, and they've fallen in love with their product and their features and nobody gives a shit right? Like people don't buy product and features. They buy solutions to a problem that they have again, preaching to the choir here. Um, and so usually the, the first and hardest step is to separate them from this love of the, like the blindness that they have for their product and their features. What is, what is the way that, that you do that specifically? How do you separate sure. themselves and call their baby ugly? So to speak, we call their baby ugly. Like I'm really, I'm really brutally honest and I'd like to do it right up front because it's like, just rip the bandaid off and set the stage, especially in the beginning, you kind of have permission to do that. I'm curious, I'm cur I think, I, yeah, my experience is like, if you, if, if you have the right founders who truly know they need your help, they, they, they kind of like it when you're like hard on them, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like I've, I've gone in before and been like, look, I understand that you love all 100 of these features. I need you to throw out 97 of them and, yeah. and give me three things that mean the most. So how, how do you communicate in that, in that same way, in that same kind of direct style with them? Is, yeah. Is, are they receptive to that? Yeah, they are. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that there's, there's like a little bit of shock at first, but then they're like, okay, I get it. It's, it's like their brain is very like process driven a lot of the time. And so if you can say, look, you love your features, you love your product, your eyes, your persona is, uh, you know, Stanford engineer or whatever it is. Uh, as the CEO of a company where you built a product for project, like project managers in construction. So those folks care about a lot of different things than you do. And they're the things that are keeping them up at night are not the same that are keeping you up at night. And so if we can agree on that, uh, that's the starting point. And then I can get kind of harsh and, and follow from there. And then the other thing is that they like to tell their own stories and we like their customers to tell their stories. So it's like this transition to customer first marketing where at any point in time where we can replace copywriting 
with the customer saying the same, effectively the same thing. That's kind of the other big shift that has to happen with product-driven founders. Another one is this idea of perfectionism um, that I think ties back into, you know, you've been birthing this product into the world. So there's a lot of pride there. And so when it comes to marketing, this is your first moment to have it be out in, in the wild and eyeballs on it. So no, everybody's really protective. And so this is actually harder for me than getting across the idea of, you know, you've been, you're talking about it. It's like too product heavy, too feature heavy. It is, we'll get into conversations around messaging and positioning and founders a lot of the time want to be right. Like they want to come up with the perfect way to message or the perfect positioning. Um, and the answer is you need a good set of hypotheses that all test a different underlying sentiment so that you can learn something from it. And then the results will speak for themselves and that's the winning line, at least for the time being until you test. Yeah, I mean, are you, are you finding yourselves in discussions so, like, look, there is no such thing as perfection? Yeah, oh, for sure. Perfect or, or just messaging, right? Yeah. Meetings will just get stalled out or like campaigns will get delayed because we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get to a point where we, everybody's on board. We've got a bunch of things we're going to test and then you'll show the creative and you'll show the campaign. We're like, great, we're going to press play in an hour. Everything's going to be good. We're going to get results. And they'll see the words and they'll see their brand and their logo and they'll get scared. And then they'll want to like, oh, I, you know what? We really shouldn't. I, I don't think we should put that out there. Um, so that's a, that's a hard one to, to navigate. And it really does slow a lot of early stage teams down, especially when they don't have someone in there saying like, hey, man, you, gotta, you have to kick this out the door um, and test. So those are a couple pet peeves. Yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I was just sort of wondering, um, have you noticed a, a certain number of light bulb moments where you've said something and finally the founder gets it and they're like, okay, a lot. Like, have you said, you know, we all sort of have our sticks, right? Yeah, we have that line that sort of finally makes people click. I'm curious for, because I want to share it with the listeners of like, if you're a salesperson and you need to go convince your founder this or the marketing person that or vice versa, what, what, what is that kind of one-liner if you have it? I think it, it varies a lot based on the industry. Like if you're talking to the founder of a security company and you're selling to CISOs, um, what's going to click for them in that aha moment is a lot different than if you're, if you're talking to the founder of a marketing so what automation do you company. Think those things are? What do you, cause I agree like with a CISO, you know, perfection, I could see the founder going, this is security. We can't yeah. not be perfect. Yeah. Right. Um, so how do you, con how do you encourage them to realize that I, you're not wrong, but here's another right answer too. With the technical audience, it's usually about if we put out one message and maybe it works to some degree, a, we're not going to know how much we're leaving on the table and B, we're not going to really learn anything from it. And so I think that when you explain the framework to them and really take the time. Um, and also it, a lot of the time it comes down to just reminding them that these are people like we're, <laughs> we're marketing and selling to people. Um, it's not just a transaction. And so we need to figure out like what makes these people tick. And the only way we can figure that out is by calibrating ourselves through testing messaging. Um, like, and it's, it's, Sometimes it's just sharing stories. Like there was, um, 
I had a friend who is the chief revenue officer at an electric motorcycle company called Alta Motors. And um, this was before I was really working on Mattermade. Um, he asked me to come in and just, just take a look at what they were doing and help out a little bit. And they were spending something like $37 to acquire a, what they considered like a high quality lead. It was weird because it's a, a vehicle company, but the lead to them was someone who would show up and take a test drive. And they were just running the same copy over and over and over again. And the very first thing and primary thing I focused on was like, in the next 60 days, we should figure out exactly why are they click? Like, what are they clicking on? Are they clicking on the promise of torque? Are they clicking on the promise of winning races? Are they clicking on the idea of a green vehicle out in nature? Are they, are they clicking on the promise of uh, a noise-free ride? And like, none of that was known. It was just like, these are all the reasons why our bikes are cool. Um, and so we very quickly tested every possible thing, whether it was the underlying sentiment of the messaging or the type of imagery we were showing, um, and got their cost to acquire down to like $3 where it had been 37. But what was it? So, right. So, and you'll never guess what happened next. Here's what yep. we found, right? Uh, so let's see. Oh my, this was like years and years and years ago. So I don't, I'm trying to remember the winning combination. It, it, well, it wasn't a silver bullet, right? So it was a combination of all of the winning variables into one asset. So I remember like, they didn't like, uh, they didn't click on things like people jumping the bikes. We thought like, Oh, this beautiful, like blue sky image of the bike all tweaked out over the Hills didn't convert. I think it was, uh, someone roosting dirt through a corner on a, on like uh, in the trees, the green was important, like the green of the trees. Um, and it was the, I think it had something to do with the torque, like equivalent torque. Cause that was what you know, dirt bikers were equating. You know, They're comparing it to like a KTM 300 or something. Yeah, something. So, so it's interesting. Cause and the reason I'm, I'm pushing on this is that, um, what all that's telling me, and, and I recently figured out because we've been A-B testing some ad copy for me, yeah. that all the ads that, at least for me, that worked were trust. Any ad hmm. copy that has the word trust clicked better for sales training. And I thought about it because I've actually been, I, literally it's in my documentation of how I train people is that people don't buy from people they like, they buy from people they trust right? We want, to the, we want them to fall in trust with us. And so, sort of, so hearing you sort of position that reaffirms my belief because as a, I'm not a motorcycle guy, wouldn't know anything about it, but I can absolutely see like if the torque is right, then they trust that this is worthy of a, a little bit more of my attention, right? Yeah. Serious yeah. bike person, right? So I totally get it. So that's an interesting story. So I, I, I think that's, you know, so my challenge to you is go talk to your people and say, hey, why do your customers trust you? Yeah, totally. Right? And I think that that's that's a that's a big piece of it. Um, what what where did you even start as an entrepreneur? Right. So you you've had these great stories and this great run of things, and you know you you motorcycled around South America, and you know you had an existential crisis in you know San Francisco at the at the at the hotel and everything. Were you always entrepreneurial as a kid? Were you the tinkerer of things? Were you, what were you like as a, as a kid? Uh, I was kind of like a weirdo as a kid. I didn't, I liked being different. Um, 
I even when I was in high school, I was like, I'm not, I don't give a shit about any of this because I'm going to become a photographer. So I'm not going to pay attention. Like, I think I flunked algebra one a three times just cause I was, didn't care to pay attention cause I was going to be a photographer. And like, I was just laser focused on this photography thing. And by my sophomore year, I was, I was charging like 150 an hour as a wedding photographer. And I was like, see, this is proof. I don't need to pay attention to math class. Uh, and yeah, so I think that in some ways that kind of focus early on was entrepreneurial and, and kind of setting the foundation. I think the real, um, the thing that I attribute a lot of my success so far to was when I was in art school, I dropped out of art school to pursue a project photographing uh, and interviewing Holocaust survivors. And I spent two years cold calling from lists of people who were supposed to be um, a Holocaust survivors that I could photograph and interview and then also fundraising for the project. And that was really formative, right? Like I was 20, uh, I had no business background or legitimate reason to be running a nonprofit. Um, but I'd partnered with this museum and they were like, great, like you can raise as much money as you want, but we're not, you know, here's, here's a list, like make hay. <laughs> And so for me, that, that process of just getting rejected over and over and over again and learning how to talk to people. And um, I think that was the beginning of just some of the, the, the grit that's necessary to run a business and um, make it through the rough patches. And then, yeah, I, the first company I tried to start, I was still trying to combine, combine my passion for art, the art world and, and uh, photography with tech. And so when I moved into my mom's basement, originally I was, trying to start what is today Squarespace. Um, and I was out like pitching the, one of the art academies to, to buy the software before it was built. And um, I got approached, I ended up getting approached by, and then the next thing I tried to that, so then I won't wound that down. I never really got it started. Um, I was like, you know what? People are oversharing photos on Facebook and they need a way to curate their photos into stories and then in order for that to happen, we need a way to search the, our Facebook photos. So we, we built this thing that could scrape all of the photos that existed, scrape all of the comments, build up meta tags. And then you could say like, uh, show me any photos with my buddy Matt drinking beers in Mexico. And it would field out of your whole Facebook library, um, which later became like, this is what graph search ultimately became before they sunset that. Um, but it was still silly. It was kind of too cute. And uh, these these investors in Portland, it's called the Portland Seed Fund. And they reached out to me and they're like, hey, we hate what you're working on, uh, but you've like unknowingly, you've networked with every single one of our LPs and, and advisors to the fund. Um, because I had been making rounds, I was like, I don't know anything about entrepreneurship, so I'm just gonna reach out, ask for coffee with all the business leaders in Portland. And um, they're like, so we, we like that about you if you're willing to abandon your idea and work on something else and we'll help you come up with that, then we'll write you a check right now. And so they wrote our first institutional check was actually, we didn't have an idea. Uh, they were just like making a bet that we'd come up with something. And then out of the diligence process and going through closing the, that initial capital, um, I became obsessed with how inefficient the legal back and forth was. And like, there was no visibility the lawyer would reach out to me and give me an update and then they'd reach out to me and ask where we were in the process and yada yada. So I ended up going out and speaking, like interviewing 20 different law firms and trying to figure out like, is this contract process seems a little bit 
you know, unclear for clients and for just both parties is, are there inefficiencies? And so that's how we like fast forward a bunch. We landed on selling to law firms and CIOs is awful, but sales teams have this problem with getting quick approvals and signatures. This is before, you know, DocuSign and EchoSign had approvals baked into their platform. It was just a signing tool at the time. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind my, of the, my main takeaway here, Richard, is that Elias is like a leprechaun. Every, he just, anything you know, he touches. Oops, oops, I networked with every LP in Portland and they wrote me a check before I had an idea. I, I, I would hire you just so I can kind of osmosis absorb some of your good luck. It's been, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge how much luck there is, right? Like, um, I've, I've been really fortunate to just be in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people. Um, and well, and have it, a lot. you're being humble, but it does take a good amount of effort to get out there and surround yourself with the right people and meet all these kind of people. Sure. So for you. That's fair. I'm sure you've made your own luck a bit as well along the way. So, um, we got to get going here in just a minute, but is there anything that Richard and I can do to, to support you and, and your efforts and your team or anything you're working on that you want to mention? Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. You know, we, uh, we just, I just launched the best in SAS podcast and, uh, was lucky enough to have you on as a guest recently. So I'd say, you know, for, for any of the folks in your audience that are listening, who are curious about, um, kind of the go to market sprint, marketing, we cover marketing sales. It's really any, anything that has to do with going from 1 million to 10 million and beyond. We're focused on the stories and like actual practical um, applications from operators and investors focused on that, that problem space. So, you know, just any folks out there that'd be interested in, in listening to it, it's called the best in SaaS podcast. Awesome. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? LinkedIn? LinkedIn would be great. Yeah. Elias Rubel. Okay. Well, thanks cool. for spending some time with us, man, and, and sharing some of your stories. Richard and I are gonna go here, go away from this, and go cry into our. In our- <laughs> About to go, man. We, we blew it. <laughs> Whatever, guys. It's, 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 it's fun. It's fun to hear the good success stories, and uh, you know, we wish you the best of luck moving forward, and, and stay in touch, man. Yeah, likewise, guys. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Bye, Les.